You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. So if you want to do something different, you have to accept that it's going to be a harder road. But the richness of it is after all these years, I now am in a place where I now see that being an outsider means more than being inside. Hello, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of Mex. And those were some words from Amy Derukakis, who is my guest on the show today. That theme of being an outsider and having the ability to help people who are within a thing an organization, a company, an initiative, an industry, to see things that even if they're aware of them, maybe they're not yet certain how they might apply to the future, is something which we kept coming back to in the conversation and I think is really central to roles like Amy's. And she herself, by her own admission, has kind of a difficult time describing what it is she does and what she's done over the years. But It was apparent to me from talking to her that she's done a great deal, not least travel. She spent a lifetime traveling, exploring, trying to find things in the world that maybe others aren't yet aware of and then share them back in some way. And that career now has led her to a role with an organization called Adjust Your Set, based between Berlin and London, where she's the Director of Cultural Insights and Trends, essentially working in agency capacity to help companies understand upcoming behaviours, plan around them, and ensure that their future products, their future services reflect users' realities. So in that sense, it comes very close to areas which I think will be very familiar to many within the MEX community, but perhaps it's a slightly different approach to what we would see as user experience work. Looking back in her career, she spent time working on the inside of some very large organizations like Target, one of the biggest retailers in the US, where she spent a number of years in a similar capacity, working often under quite a lot of secrecy, which we get on to talk about and why there is a need for that secrecy to try and identify future products and future trends. So we ended up having a really wide-ranging discussion which talks about some of those challenges that she's come up against, some of the techniques that she has used to try and help organizations which can sometimes be reluctant to see the world in a new light, to understand the value that that might deliver to their organization. And it was a conversation which you know I really loved having with uh, Amy. It opened my eyes to a whole bunch of, of different stuff that perhaps I wouldn't otherwise have come across. Now, we'll get into that conversation shortly, and then I'll be back at the end to give you a bit of news about what's been going on within the MEX community. But there was something else which came out of that conversation with Amy, which has stuck with me. It comes towards the end of the the conversation, where she talks about this notion that at the moment, there are people all the time who are knocking metaphorically on doors, who are trying to send a message to people who probably need to listen to that message. And yet it's one of the things which is hardest 
to do once you're established within an industry or you're working in a particular area where you feel you have some expertise. And yet it's so essential, I think, to all of us to be able to be open to new ideas, to new ways of doing things, to new voices, perhaps from unexpected quarters. And the story that Amy tells around it, I think, illustrates it much better than I can. So I'll I'll let you listen to that later on in the interview and come to your own conclusions. Uh, But for me, it was a really powerful reminder that we all really need to be switching on that sense every day of being willing to welcome new ideas, welcome new people uh, into the practice that we have within a particular industry. Uh, And that's the way we all end up growing. So here's the conversation with Amy. I'll be back at the end. I hope you enjoy. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join me this morning. Whereabouts are you dialing in from today? I'm always intrigued where our guests are based when they're talking to us. So I'm in Berlin this week, um, but I switch off and on between Berlin and London. Well, it's um, certainly a running theme, I think, in the things that I've seen of what you've done so far, that switching between countries and an international outlook. I mean, it's looking down your... LinkedIn history, for instance, it just strikes me that there's many different countries, many different experiences there. And I'm sort of curious where that comes from. You know, there's obviously that strong international focus right from, you know, quite an early age, even with education. Is there something you can put your finger on that made it that way for you? Uh, I have I had parents that were very exploratory and my father's Greek, but um, he, he left quite from an early age um, and, and was a merchant marine and he fell in love with Vancouver and jumped ship and didn't really speak the language and ordered apple pie for quite a few um, <laughs> few days from a diner until one of the Greek chefs figured out that there was, there was these Greek sailors. And so I think... And, and they ate not an apple pie, but I think it comes a lot from my parents and, and an openness. And with my mother, she would pack up our pack up a van, and every summer we would drive across Canada. We'd go on another adventure. So for those three months, every summer break was always about exploring. And I'm sh- I'm sure that comes. It, it they've they gave me the opportunity to to look wide and. When I told them that I wanted to go to, to New York for school, and I was only applying to one school. It was the one I wanted to go to. They were quite supportive because I, I, I pled a case at like 14. <laughs> this is going to be the adventure I was going to go on. Um, so it must have something to do with their influence. And did that then continue as you went into to education and, and further education, that international focus within the studies that you were doing? Yes, I got really creative with things. So um, I studied, uh, I first went into school because I was quite passionate about fashion and wanted to do the business side of things. The creative side, it was actually deterred. My father was like, if, you, if you're going to go, I can support the business side, but not necessarily going down a creative path. And as I did internships into to different fashion, um, I really always think this is quite important for people starting out. Do as many internships as, as you can um, because you get to, to dive into different different industries and, and figure out exactly what you don't want. But I learned quite quickly I didn't want to work within fashion. But 
the only program that was going to Florence was a fashion program and there was a year program. But I figured out that there was some crossover courses between the international trade and marketing degree. And so I convinced the program to let me go <laughs> and did that for a year. Uh, and then I had found out about this program called Semester at Sea, which is something I always wanted to do. What it is, it was college on a ship. We went to 10 countries and we left from Vancouver um, and we ended up in Florida. And it was 100 days. And I studied international trade, food and, food and tourism, anthropological tourism. And it was this discovery phase, which was it was amazing because it made you question things because you really were looking at through the eyes of a student. And so there was this one time when we were in this market in Kenya and this gentleman, he apologized for using a cell phone because he was in the market stall and he was dressed, you know, in, in full Maasai warrior regala. But he, the cell phone to a tourist kind of like changed the image of what he was supposed to be. And I, that like completely struck me as something so interesting about like, why couldn't he have a cell phone? Like he was just living his life, but like, what is, what are, what are our perceptions? And then what are the realities? So I think that also was a big shaping for me in regards to what I wanted to do, which was, you know, be curious for a living. Well, I guess you can't really put a price on that sort of experience, you know, at a, a formative stage as a student to have that exposure over a pretty short period of time to so many different cultures and lifestyles like that you know especially I guess I'm not sure exactly what the year would have been for that but it sounds like it would have been quite an interesting time in somewhere like Kenya as people were starting to get their first connections to the web the first cell phones emerging and to see yeah. the sort of early influences that was having on culture there well it was 2004 and it was really interesting because certain I just looked at this as Baskin Robbins and I've always looked at travel like that like Baskin Robbins the idea is there's 32 flavors 31 flavors, 32 flavors of ice cream. And it's I've, I've sampled countries. I've been fortunate enough to go to quite a few, but I'm not saying that I've seen, you know, check off the list. There's places I've gone back to multiple times. They've really, I've connected with them or it's been, it's been, uh, there's been something about it. And one of those countries was Vietnam. And in 2004, majority of people were still on bicycles. And then I went in 2009, most people were on motor, mo mopeds. And then by 2015, I went with my mom. 2014, everybody was on a moped. And my mom actually got hit by one crossing the street because they were just so not used to people walking. And so that that seeing change as it happens um, and, you know, the fascination of specifically a country like Vietnam where, you know, it's it has one of the youngest populations in the world because they lost such a huge percentage during the war they call it the American War, um, that th those places just like really stir stuff up and um, make you question. I, I, I don't go with hypothesis or things I need to find. I just go to look. And that's shaped all of my work because then it's this kind of like data bank of stuff that I can pull on for other projects. I think that's such a fundamental skill to really any practice, whatever term one wants to apply to it, whether it's trend watching or whether it's experience design work, you know, that, that fundamental ability to go in with an open mind and look to try and understand why certain things are happening in certain places with certain people um, just feels like something which is, is quite fundamental. I mean, it, it, has that been a consistent strand throughout the 
career that you've then gone on to? Yes, I think I would I would say for sure. Uh, and having but having empathy too in it, I think is quite important. And it's funny, you know, and when we had first had an initial conversation and just thinking about what the heck do I do? Because I don't really talk about it. You know, part of it being most of the work I've ever done has been secret. And up until this year, I realized I didn't have to be the secret. <laughs> so that was a good life shift of going, you know, I can actually talk about what I do. I can't necessarily show the work, but I, it, and actually people might be interested in what this quirky thing I do, but being open and observing and also engaging, it's not just looking as an outsider, you know, it, it's, it's, it's much having the conversation and partaking in somebody's life so that they don't necessarily, you know, the exchange always has to be a bit equal. And that's my, I have issues with tourism now and how we live. And, you know, there's, there's been, been a big influx of digital, digital nomads. And, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that I can work remote. Um, but I, I'm, we have to be careful about if we're not just taking and, that's something I think it's a, is important just in, in our work. You can see that's a really big issue right now within fashion, um, specifically about, you know, the, the influence of like urban and street culture and people saying, you know, your misappropriation. And then what does that culture then, what are they left with if you take? It's a super fascinating time when you're trying to think about like influence and looking for inspiration. But then are you just, are we giving anything back? You know, because you get you get the inspiration, but then it becomes the thousand dollar handbag that nobody can buy. How, how does that process differ between when you're working client side internally and when you're working with an agency as you are now mm. in terms of how you sort of explain that to the client, you know, whether that client is the management team within an internal role or whether that's, you know, a client of an agency that you're working with, you know, is there a difference between how you explain the striking of that balance and the role of that kind of empathy and involvement with the community that you're looking at for inspiration? I think it's important. I think we get too far removed from who our customer is and we can paint these like wide brushstrokes of what we think somebody is. And I read this really, it was a study recently. And it was one of the most powerful things I'd ever read. It was just, it struck me. It was one of those like gives you chills. And it was talking about low income families and, and like why there's such obesity rates. And, you know, everyone says like, Oh, education. And there's, there's been so much like reasoning why the lower middle class has problems more with obesity. And the, the empathetic researcher actually figured out that it's easier for somebody on a lower income. They have to say no to everything in their life, to their child. They can't get the phone. They can't get the iPad. They can't get the shoes. But they can get the hamburger on the $1 meal. And that's a way of showing love. And, like, that is so vital for when you kind of talk about the reality of someone's life is to understand what that means to somebody. And then you know what? You don't criticize it in the same way and you don't market it in the same way. You look at the realities of maybe you try and give a little bit of a hand up. But that to me was like something that was like, that was a researcher that, that looked beyond the stereotypes and actually found, you know, truth in it. And in that truth, I think it could be really helpful for people to know that instead of these kind of boxes we check people into. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, there's that 
overall goal of trying to reduce the distance between that sort of disconnect of what people might imagine people's lives to be and the reality of what they actually are. Uh, I guess it's just in the experience I had of talking to various people on this podcast, sometimes even when the researchers themselves, whatever form or job title that takes, have the enthusiasm and the skills to do that, uh, taking people along on that journey with you uh, can be a challenge in, in different mm. ways. Sometimes it, perhaps it's a challenge of just getting people who are willing or have the time to be present to see some of that research in a way that really communicates that reality. Uh, other times it can be, you know, other elements of the business that can then constrain what can be done, even if that reality is understood. And, you know, I suppose with you having worked in a few different ways around this area, both uh, internally for companies and also uh, as a, an external agent of, of change, uh, I'm curious as to, you know, whether there are times when you feel that's been more effective uh, or, or otherwise, you know, whether there's a, a sort of perfect set of conditions that you can either create or, or you look for and take advantage of to be able to make sure that the reality that you're seeing when you go out into the field, then ends up going on to have a significant effect within the work that's then done off the back of that research? I think I, I'm realistic to what company, how how much companies can shift. And when I freelanced for a long time and I'd run other businesses in the past, and when I was going back into a company and the recruiter said to me, she goes, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Because you have to be comfortable with the fact that it might take four months to get for somebody to decide blue <laughs> because for packaging or whatever because as a, as a your own as an entrepreneur you can decide blue in an afternoon you know there's there's certain complications there's stakeholders there's there's more people there's more cooks in the kitchen when you're working with large companies um and i think it's about trying to bring them out of their world and listening to trying to you know, talk to everybody in the room and not just the CEO, because actually, you know, the, the receptionist in some companies is way more powerful. She She's the stakeholder. She's going to get you the right interviews within the company and get the right people in the boardroom and, and nudge them. This is important to be there. So it's about talking to the whole room. It's about getting them out of the room. And it's about being realistic to what change can look like within a company. And so presenting small wins um, and also being realistic to what industries consider change and what what's their long-term goal. So like an FMCG company, a particular, say, like a, a manager within that, they, they want quick wins within two to three years. So when they're looking at future-proofing, they're not looking at, say, what automotive does when they want 10 to 15 years. Is their, their legacy employees, like that particular industry, they don't leave and they don't leave that brand most of the time. You know, that's a career. And so it's about knowing how much um, your audience wants to change. And actually, automotive needs to change, but they don't want to. <laughs> you know, so it's like, how do you work within the confines of a sector, um, within the culture of a company? And, and it's, I think it's so important to not come in and like talk, talk to people, it's talk with people. And so it's about having the round table. It's about bringing in people's opinions, it's not just my opinion. I'm provocative when I come in a room. Like, that's my job. I'm supposed to challenge, um, but I'm also supposed to inspire. And, and and that's the role of being an outsider. 
but it's also being cognizant of the realities of insight too. Is there a parallel role there, I guess, for that same sort of empathy that you've talked about in relation to the, the research work that you're doing, but then bringing that internally to to the approach that you take within the companies that you're working with, you know, having, as you say, the empathy to understand that actually often it's not necessarily the most senior people within the company, uh, but it's others who have different types of role um, who are going to be the, the key, the gatekeepers to being able to get action for, from those results. You know, do you find you have to apply a similar sort of empathy to, to understanding that and how to navigate that landscape? I think, it's, you know, the general rule of thumb is, to, is you know, everybody likes to be around kind people so I think it's it's just giving as much respect just giving respect across across the board to to all levels and I've seen what can happen if you're not nice to the receptionist as an example I've I've seen what it's like to work with other consultants when they dismiss when you dismiss employees that don't have the title they are gonna they're the cog in your they will be that cog in the wheel that stops the process and so you know, tr- you have to get in everybody. And one of my first jobs ever out of college was um, I worked with a consultancy group called Twist that worked with Target. And we would meet in a secret room every three months and we would travel the world looking for interesting stuff for every department um, except for fashion. So from automotive to, to everything. And so who came in that room was a CEO down to a new sales, like a buyer, so you you learn to be respectful and listen to what they wanted. Every single person, you had to take into consideration what was their remit. What would they want us to bring back in three months? You know, was it inspiration for packaging? Was it a new marketing plan for Christmas, you know, 2000, what have you? So I think probably just talking about this now, I think that probably had something to do with it as I learned the importance of listening to all voices because they, they all are important and they, they all have their own agenda. Companies don't think with one mind. <laughs> That's the thing. They're, they're living, breathing organisms of people. And I think acknowledging their challenges but providing them individual solutions if you have to is really important. That word secrecy has come up a couple of times now and that that intrigues me you know particularly in the context of someone like target uh, and for the kind of work that you're doing for them around trends and and the future why was there such an emphasis on that remaining a closely guarded secret for most retailers there's there tends to be a secret room with within a building and it's it's vital because what happens in that room is it's the new designer collection. It's the licensing opportunities being discussed. It's the visuals for Christmas 2020. And if a spy, and there are spies within retail, finds out and tips a competitor, that's millions lost. And so it's really, it's always been very important to, for the not sharing. And so the majority of the work I've ever done, I've signed NDAs that like I can't even, I can't talk about anything. And so it's always been, you know, that's the challenge when you do this kind of stuff is like, can you show, show me the proof points? And particular with Target, that was a great, one of my best experiences I ever had. Um, and then the recession came <laughs> and that became not as important a job to keep the person that flies around the world. But they, it was really important, like to their organization to, to have um, people on the outside because I look at the world differently. I travel really differently in that three months. So if they sent a buying team to Australia, 
they would stay in the really great hotel. They would have, you know, their top 10 places they should go. Well, I, w- I stayed with a friend. I took the bus <laughs> and I would get off on stops just because the neighborhood looked interesting to me because I had more time. That's important. Time and creativity are really important and they're not within corporations. They've been completely dialed out, which is something I'd love to talk about after. So that's really important. Um, but for instance, with that trip to Australia, there was some fabric on the seats of that bus that they had taken, you know how kids graffiti on seats, like, you know, school buses and stuff. They had actually printed that as fabric. And so I brought pictures back of that and then actually went into the sheets for a dorm, like for a dorm idea. So the inspiration comes differently as being the outsider, but it is important and it it has to remain secretive. (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, let's talk a bit about that, that issue of of time and creativity, because, yeah, that sounds to me like a a prime example of that, where by having the time to travel the, the slower route, perhaps the less sort of obviously efficient route compared to, you know, I'm on a business trip, we're going to stay in a business hotel, we're going to have all our schedule planned out. By taking those detours, you there discovered something which then went on to be a influencing factor within the design of a a product. But do you feel that that's something which is neglected within most companies, that there's not enough time for that kind of creative exploration? Oh my gosh. I mean, this this is the battle cry that I think we is really important and for fiscal reasons. So I recently had an opportunity, I went to Milan for design week and I sat in the dark room to hear a presentation of one of the first women I ever interned with. Her name's Lee Edelcourt and she's this futurist who predicts through color and she's quite fascinating. And she was talking about the demise of fashion and what's happened as an industry, they're dying. It's, it's a really big problem. Luxury is finding its way, but mass is really struggling. There's not one pair of jeans everybody wants. And what she said is what happened is, you know, data, data can tell you a lot and it can tell you what somebody bought. And so what's happened is for so many brands is they've just reinvented what was popular last year based on sales figures. So yellow, they do a bit of a different shade of yellow or the pocket did well. So they add on a pocket. And then that's not super inspiring for consumers or for the teams that are doing it. And so these creative teams that have gone into these industries because they were, you know, inspired by the what they could create, it, that process processes of taking it out. You know, there's more collections and there's been more steamrolled, and we can see it. We know it within companies. And actually, you know, the role I, I've taken on with a gesture set is I was quite clear. You know, when I was offered a full-time role, I said, absolutely not. And that was quite bold to say to a CEO. <laughs> um, but I, I said, you know, nobody good that works in culture will sit at a desk for five days a week. You know, my value is that I see things on the outside and you find me interesting and I need to remain interesting. And we, ha- we have to allow space for creativity is it's so important for the work we do, for the business we do. There's fiscal reasons as to why it's important, and it's not. And, you know, one of the my biggest Achilles heel in life as what I thought it was, was that I didn't come from a traditional agency. I have a really eccentric career. You know, I've worked with oligarchs working on private islands, and how do you market that to features of washing machine, to what is meat, what does meat look like? or luxury you know it's always been different 
but it was not traditional. It wasn't within the traditional planners, you know, progress. And I thought that was a negative until I realized I got to build the last 15 years being on the outside. And actually the biggest pain point we have, I now realize I'm valuable, which is a great thing <laughs> for your own self. I'm, I'm valuable because I still am outside. So you sent me the link to your Instagram before we, we connected on the podcast. And having had a look down the collection of, of images that you've got on there, uh, I can certainly attest to that. I mean, there is that. It, it shines through that sort of outsider perspective, the, the creative eye for things that perhaps other people wouldn't see. Um, and it does make me wonder you know, how you discipline yourself or inspire yourself i'm not quite sure how you describe it in fact to to keep that open mind and to, to keep um pushing yourself to to look for new things and not to get sort of settled into a particular rut i mean I, there was one image which really caught my eye on there um which was you'd taken a, a photograph uh, just rather beautifully framed actually of uh, a shop window with probably 50 different advertisements on there, handwritten advertisements somewhere in London, uh, like you know, the, the classified ads oh, yeah, that you sometimes yeah. see displayed. And it's the sort of thing that we all see probably every day. And yet you've captured it, obviously, which is something, it looks to me like a, a piece of, of inspiration, which perhaps was relevant to a project you were doing at the time. I'm not sure, but it's obviously something which was meaningful to you, but it's something which maybe no one would have thought to capture in that way. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, how that how that came about and whether it is representative of a, a sort of discipline that you have to keep creating and keep looking out for, for new things. Well, I don't necessarily consider it like painful. <laughs> I, I, I've always been curious. I've always been looking at things. And so I, I do it with joy all the time. And that I will say that like, I watch horrible television, absolutely like stuff I would never admit to like, really crappy television that's the only time I can turn my brain off because I'm thinking all the time I read everything like you know bus signs um I'll pick stuff up I'll talk to people on the street it's always changing and that particular one so that picture so there were advertisements of people looking for rooms and it was because I had booked an Airbnb because I do this quirky thing between um, Berlin and London and it was a neighborhood I'd never been in it was a last minute booking. And I was like, I'm just going to wander. I've never been here. And I was struck by within a, a couple tube stops, the world felt really quite different. And it was quite an, an ethnic neighborhood in that it wasn't gentrifying. Families were going to stay. It was an, a very embedded cultural stamp within this one area. And, you know, that just the, the writing of I need I need a van or I have a room for let was was still the communication method and we forget about like how people communicate like there's this book that's so fascinating about the history of chinese food in the u.s it's really great and when people would get off the bus uh, uh, like immigrants um to this to this day they will figure out jobs based on area codes so they'll be like oh we need a 601 and then you'll go to wherever that area code is in the u.s so you'll you'll end up in nebraska just because there's somebody that needs a job that's hiring with that area code. 
So there's codes of how we communicate. Basically, we need to get off the internet. That's my biggest advice is that there's definitely fascinating things and we're all reading the same stuff. You have to leave your desk and you have to go out in the world and be willing to try a few new things. And they don't always work out. I mean, the amount of events I've gone to where, like I, re I recently went to a, a future food exhibit and it, it wasn't very interesting. <laughs> and I went, wow, that, well, that was five hours of my Saturday. So there's, they're not always wins. Um, the most interesting thing was actually, there was one line on the description and they said that you know 75% of the population eats 12 plants and five animals. And I'm like, man, we're boring, you know? But that tidbit, I put that in my portfolio brain because that might come up on a future food project about actually maybe it's just figuring out what's the 13th vegetable. It doesn't always have to be insects. <laughs> so how does that then play out over the sort of wider portfolio of clients that you, you work with with an agency? Because if, you, if you've got that process going on the whole time of trying to keep a creative eye open and trying to capture things which might be useful, you know, whether it's something to do with food or an entirely you know, different industry, uh, how do you bring a structure to that which keeps those tidbits useful for future potential clients, you know, clients that you might not even know about or for an industry that you've never worked with before? You know, do you do you have a, a structured way um, of keeping track of all that stuff? No. And that's so, <laughs> no, it's, uh, I remember things. I have a good memory. Um, my Instagram feed, actually, when I do semiotic work, I will pull imagery. So I recently worked on a project where they were looking for visual cues in Germany that would relate back to packaging for a drink company. Would this color palette work? And then I could pull imagery that would be relevant. Um, but a lot of it is is just from, oh, I remember this, which is probably the worst way ever. It's, it's harder than pass on to people, too, because it becomes it's the the knowledge is mine and I'm trying to set up processes and systems within the agency. So it's, I'm not the only one because there should be more. Um, we need to have, there shouldn't just be one person that kind of holds the knowledge. So I'm, I'm in the process of figuring that out right now. How do you pass it on? But I tend to get a lot of questions about like, okay, so this is all interesting, but what the heck do you do with this? Um, so I can give you an example, which kind of would probably make a bit more sense. Uh, so how does this work within the agency? that I've been working with is um, I worked on a project for a banking client that were really wanting to dial up their communication. So I work with a culture to content um, agency within London and they were wanting to talk more about travel and their travel opportunities and how does that look within their communication. And so the brief was, we need to know about what's going on in travel. And so I, I came back to them and be like, well, what do you mean by travel? You know, who, who is your, your customer? And if we think about travel, travel is completely shifted. And here's all the different ways people travel. It could be everything from a baby moon, which is when people are expecting a baby and they'll go on that honeymoon. That started to be a lift to people selling houses and, and going on trips. And that could be you know, inspirational content if you're wanting to inspire, but also from visual cues. So this was a UK-based uh, bank, and they had current pictures of, like, dreamy pictures of Bali. But the reality is 80% of their target market went to Spain. And so if you're wanting to talk about aspirational but realistic travel, 
it should really be content around Spain or things that are related to their actual customer. So it's about knowing what their customer wants and then giving, you know, content that reflects that. So on a, a project like that, where are you most comfortable with where your involvement finishes? Because you know, when, when I think about some of the people, for instance, involved in our MEX community and how they might uh, work perhaps a little further down the line in that overall chain of how it then manifests for the customer in terms of then perhaps designing some of the communications or building that into the actual you know services and products which people are then going to use from, from that particular client. Yeah, how... Uh, how far do you like to go with these things in terms of making sure the inspiration that you have transmitted then goes into becoming something which is a, a meaningful, easy-to-use product that, that reflects the, the truth of that first insight that you discovered? That was always the pain point, and that's why I actually started a couple different companies on my own because I got I get I only get to go to the to the front first front door. I don't get to go through the entire maze. I tend to be brought in at the very beginning and I, and, and it's not just for planners. So I, I'll get brought in for the strategy teams. I get brought in for creative and I get brought in for new business. So I, I can say, I say that I'm a culture concierge. So I'll float between different departments, but it's always really at the upfront. It's before the idea. I'll get the brief before it goes through the whole process. And, you know, what I am at the heart of it is a researcher. So I'll do the research that then could, um, and it's, it's done in, you know, one pages should be one pages. <laughs> um, it's done in a way that's concrete enough that somebody could then start to build a house. And I'll still get brought in through the creative process if somebody's working on an idea. I'll get the phone call saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find some support or what do you think about this? And then I'll be like, oh, here's, here's some ideas around that. But I don't get to go through the whole journey. And that is something I've learned to accept. And that was actually a big thing with the target work is why that team, why we were in that room for so many years was because we didn't take ownership. So I don't have any ownership. So I would get asked, like, what can you prove that you did on the shelf? But my job was never to be on the shelf. My job was to inspire somebody that would spark their own idea and then they would create it and they get the credit for the shelf. So the majority of the stuff I've ever done, I can't really claim credit for. And I'm fine with that. That's part of what makes this. A, I, ha, I don't have that much of an ego. <laughs> so that's a very helpful thing in this instance. But no, not the, not the whole. I don't go the whole race. Did you ever see things on the shelves at Target where you thought that probably relates back to the things that we were doing in that secret room? Yes. Yeah. And that was always nice when you're like, I, I know that that came from somewhere or, um, you know, the, the, the client, like the client that I, we, we got the conversation because I read the article and I knew that they were, you know, we'd be a good fit. So there are ways that you feel like it doesn't feel meaningless work. It does feel meaningful and it's selfishly really interesting work for, for my own brain. So I get enough reward not from any athletes. <laughs> so. Is it something that you would like to take further in the future? You know, in the sense of, could you anticipate wanting to 
build a say a product company of your own where you took your um, current interests in being able to, to spot trends and, and inspirations uh, and then took that through to something where you yourself actually had the role in shaping the product getting it into the, the customer's hands or do you think you're always going to be happiest at that um, uh, that earlier stage of, of being able to, to spot the, the things before people know that they even want or, or need them? Well, it's funny you say that because so Onika Simon, who you interviewed um, not that long ago, so she, I'm working on a project with her and I brought to her an idea about that I've wanted to do for three years. And it's the idea, it's called Uncomfortable Updates. And it's a line of product that talks about uncomfortable things in our lives and sparks communication around that. Um, and that's talking about you know, giving somebody a voice to talk about either, say, a, a miscarriage or a divorce or a job loss. You know, we, we celebrate and we bring attention to the, like, birthdays and the anniversaries. But actually, there's these pieces of our lives that I think are much more powerful and they shape us differently. And they also should be talked about. And so we're developing a product that does that. But the insight from that came from as much personal. Um, I got a bill for my for half my honeymoon <laughs> and I made a five minute decision to move to Berlin. It was quite an adventurous week. Lost a job that week too. It was this whole big thing. Um, and it, and it showed me the importance of talking about things that are hard and that we don't have language in society and we're getting better with mental. There's, you know, there, you see that there's a, a different um, interest in, in mental health and, but like, Men are not equipped with language. Greeting cards are specifically created uh, for women by women. And there's space to like kind of grow it up as a category. So I am working on something. This is very much a side hustle, but it's something to me that's really important. That sounds uh, fascinating. I think you're absolutely right as well. I mean, it's often the things which we either don't have language to talk about or, or we don't have a, a sort of framework of permission to talk about that end up coming back and having the most significant, often the most significant negative impact on our mental health. So creating a, a, a place or um, a way of talking about those things um, sounds like something which could be hugely valuable. Yeah. And also my divorce was the best, one of the best things that ever happened. Like that as much shouldn't be hidden in a closet. Like, you know, that to me is as big a, a, that was a shift in my life. And I think that those kind of stuff, like those, those are the things that, you know, I like people that have lived, you know what I mean by lived? Like they have, you know, they, they've gotten lost and they've fallen and they like people that scrape their knees. Those are the people that actually I want to have dinner with. They're interesting. And, and those are the people I, I like to surround myself with. Those are the people that have the best stories. And I want to just, I want to hear their stories more openly. And I think other people do too, because, you know, when you, when you start to be more vulnerable that influences everything from, you know, the work we do to the, you know, to being just better. I, I've, my friendships deepened when I became more honest because it looks pretty, if you look at my Instagram, it looks like life's not so bad. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's varied, it's colorful, it's so much fun. But there's also been other stuff that have gone on. And when I started to put language to it, it opened up 
um, different types of closeness. And I think that's really important. And I think that there needs to be a product around that. So I'm working on that. Well, I'll be fascinated to see how it works out. And I hope um, you'll keep in touch and let us know how that goes. Um, I'm I'm wondering, you know, in the the work that you're doing, particularly now that you're working with an agency where you get to see a a broader um, spread of industries and and clients than perhaps you would do in an in-house role. Do you think there are particular types of company or particular industries which are more aware of people's growing appetite for that sort of realism. I mean, you talked earlier about the company that you're working with in banking and showing them that actually for people, although you can get all of this aspirational image around Bali and traveling to far-flung exotic places, actually for most people, something that's more realistic is a holiday closer to home or perhaps more within budget. And, you know, that sense of being able to see that as a, as a virtue, as being able to understand something which is closer to the way people really feel, really think the warts at all part of, of life. You know, do you think there are there are industries or, or companies out there that you're noticing that are, are more willing to sort of embrace that approach and to, and capitalize on that ability to connect better with their customers in a more realistic way? I think when I first um, started, I first started freelancing with the gesture set and their position has always been culture affects commerce and content. And that was the first... You know, I've always worked a lot on like product side. Most of the work I've ever done was about product focused. Yeah. And, but this was about content. And actually it feels, it feels like a great fit because content, how you describe, you know, the everyday communication is competing against so much. You know, as you know, there's amazing assortment of podcasts and just we've elevated content you know it's gotten better i think um and there's so much choice you know there's so much cord cutting with regards to television there's very little that's that we all watch except for love island in the uk i'll never understand that but it's a good space for for like understanding culture in, in terms of how they describe it not necessarily for influencing the product those streams take way too long a brand might be interested in creating a unisex clothing line because that's much more reflective of where we're going with culture, which is more genderless. But that will take years to get through the pipeline. But they can start talking about it and how it's important on social media. So th- those culture is faster when it comes to content, I would think. And it's way more important. I mean, you can see what happened with Pepsi and Kendall Jenner, where there was, you know, it was quite famous in this protest. Like she crossed the line and here's a Pepsi and like life's all okay. But like everyone went, you, you've completely demeaned our experience of what we're protesting for and you productized it. And there's such scrutiny. So if anything, brands right now need to be really aligned with culture and aware. And it's not just saying like taking ownership of being part of the conversation. Most of the time, you should just be an observer. Like, don't try and get into a party that you don't have any benefit being in because we're in a very much an age of transparency. And specifically, if you're going towards a Gen Z consumer, younger, they're very different than millennials. And their expertise and their acceptance of brands, they're really weary. And they're going to kick your tires. 
And so you have to, if you're going to align yourself with culture, you have to do it in a respectful way. I, I think that that's the key word really there, isn't it? Is, is conversation, you know, that yeah. these things have become much more conversational now between organizations uh, and the people that they are trying to provide products and, and services to. And just like in any conversation, if you don't respect the etiquette of the language and the situation that you're in, then people are very quickly going to start to look askance at you and realize that you're not actually a real player in that conversation. You're just someone who's trying to butt in or interrupt and uh, yeah. in a way which people are, are not comfortable with. And that's one of the most off-pitting things, whether that's around yeah. a product or whether that's just a conversation you're having with someone in the street. And that's a, a discipline which is probably uh, something a lot of companies could do with spending more time thinking about. Definitely. And a really good example would be, so Primark recently, um, they made a whole bunch of pride wear. Pride as a topic, as an as a product is actually worth a lot of money. There's been such an interest in all brands, you know, there's a, there's, is it pride washing in a way, which pink washing has been an issue in the past with, with cancer research, you know, just putting a pink bow and then it's like, well, what actually goes, but with Primark and pride, they made a line of t-shirts made in Turkey, which is not known for acceptance. Um, so that was scrutinized. So there's your check first is your, is the product was made, in the really the wrong country if you're talking to that market the second part was they then did a donation to a charity that did not support any pride walks in the in the world they actually were against them so they chose the wrong charity and they didn't give very much and those things people pick up on that you know down to the label that was noticed and reported and that's how how careful you have to be these days is because they were, there's a lot of backlash against them for that is if you're going to say you support pride you've chosen a charity that doesn't and you've made a product in a country that doesn't support it, it does make you wonder doesn't it how that occurs within organizations where in the climate that we now live in with this much more conversational approach why an organization wouldn't realize that that was something that they were going to get called on and that people would actually do the research and have the tools to do the research and make those connections and realize that things didn't perhaps align in a way that was true to the, the values of, of what they were trying to do there. And it, it makes me wonder about the the future of that and particularly you know roles like yours where mm. you're trying to connect people to the reality of people's desires, their aspirations for the future, what's real to them in their lives currently, and making sure that that remains a true and consistent thread throughout the way a company then responds to that. And, you know, I, I wonder how that needs to change overall in the future, you know, whether you've been able to give thought now, having spent time working alongside an agency, having spent work uh, time working in-house, whether you've been able to form thoughts about, you know, what those sort of ideal team structures look like, you know, whether that's something where there should always be external agencies involved, whether that's something that internal teams can build up a practice of for their own, um, or whether you feel that there's sort of one approach which uh, is going to emerge as, as the dominant one. I think that brands that talk to their customers through the whole process, not just the end, they're going to be the winners. And so Target specifically, they just they uh, there was a fast company article I can send it to you that was talking about uh, how they they have a network of like super shoppers, and the design team as they're 
going through the design process will send things out. There is, I guess, there must be NDAs involved, but they'll say, you know, what do you think of this or what are your opinions? And then they'll come back and they'll, there'll be some co-creation in it, but with their, their exact target market that they've defined as the, you know, the leading edge. Um, and they've said that like, you know, that's been really inspiring for their work. They get some real time answers and, and, you're getting outside opinion outside opinion is so important you know because when you start to talk to a room within the room like you lose so much another example is I just went to um, a pop-up experience and I looked around and I was like you know they've regenerated this it's called beautiful allotment and they've changed this um this garden over the course of the summer and I'm looking around and it's it's in Hackney and I'm like uh I, there's just me here, you know, like this isn't really the most diverse crowd because you had to VIP, you had to register and there was this whole process. And I'm like, and then what's going to happen with the garden after, you know, like this beautiful garden they've been growing all year. Is it going to go to a charity? There's nothing mentioned in that. Or, you know, you, you walk by the dilapidated um, phone box right outside the event. They put so much money into creating this space, but then nothing's been given to the community people notice this stuff more and you your consumers so in my case i was very much a consumer of this event i'm writing the letter of saying you know just gentle nudge there's a there's an amazing garden groups within this community that i'm sure would really like to have the produce that you you know don't just throw it out and could you do could you invite the community in for that last day before you pack up shop beyond just me i was too many there's too many of me there so I think that, um, and let's see if they listen, but, you know, listen to your customers because they've got some really good opinions that may go unnoticed. I don't think that they, I don't know what their plan are, but let's just say that that wasn't something that they were planning on doing. That's interesting. That uh, observation of that there's too many of me there. I mean, I think that's something which a lot of companies are struggling with as well. And that, yes. that willingness to not just pay lip service to, but to actively embrace trying to diversify the crowd that you surround yourself with. I mean, every time we see it in action, every time I talk to someone on this show, for instance, who has embraced that, you get a sense of the hugely positive benefits that flow from that. And yet it's something which people, companies still really seem to struggle to put into practice. Uh, and, yes. I, and I wonder, you know, how we get better at that. I mean, we've talked a bit about like your Instagram account, for instance, mm. and the, I think, you know, you're probably in the same position as, as most of us who have Instagram accounts that you tend to post on there the things that um, align with a happy, bright outlook on life. And mm. you then tend to have similar things pop up from the people that you follow. And you quite quickly find yourself in an echo chamber, not just on Instagram, it's just an oh, example yeah, yeah. Of, of that effect. And, you know, it, it makes you wonder about how um, those sort of technologies, which have got such potential to expose us to much greater diversity, actually end up in a situation where they end up making um, our outlook on life more homogenous and whether there is a way we can can avoid that. It's um, probably something which uh, is going to be one of the big challenges of the next few years, I think. Well, I think you need to give peeps, you, you have to be realistic of the realities of like your company. So in, in my case, I'm, I'm much more likely to get the job because of 
the background and the experience I've had compared to somebody that hasn't had the same opportunities. But someone first needs the opportunity. You know, they need to like get their foot on the rung and we have to enable space for them to get on the rung. It, you know, we, we can't judge all with the same like CV job requirements if you're wanting to change the ratio. And, you know, there was this recent BBC video. There are these little short snippets. And this guy, he was just so, uh, so fascinating. I was, I'll send it to you as well. He went, he was like, I want to be wealthy. Like he, he grew up in, in, East, in East London and he decided he was going to figure out how to be wealthy. So he figured out which was the most, um, the best, the, the most wealthy zip code within the, within London. And he went knocking door to door and he had a series of questions that he wanted to know, how do I get to where you are? Like really just kind of, um, pretty ballsy <laughs> not i don't mean this in a bad way not very british <laughs> no, it and, sounds like uh, an expert user researcher in the making yes, there, you know going yes. out and, and meeting his target audience yes so he went knocking door to door on his second door in mayfair he knocks on the ceo of blackstone am i saying that right the big equity firm oh yeah absolutely uh, yes and i think it was wife answered the door and he, he said his very open honest thing and he was invited in he met the ceo He's become his mentor. He's gone on to intern. He's met with the mother and they're now supporting him. And he's gone into the internship program and now he's giving back. And he was the youngest and by far the most diverse within that company. But the, the CEO acknowledged that. So that video is actually a really nice way of showing how do you, you do change. And sometimes it, it requires the, the ballsiness of the person that doesn't necessarily have. But he also opened the door. That's just as important. Somebody knocked, but somebody listened. And we need to have that exchange because people are knocking right now, but we're not opening doors. And Absolutely. That's the it takes two that's parties to that transaction, I guess, to, uh, yes. to, to make that happen. Um, but as I think you were saying earlier as well, that, that willingness to get out there and see these things in person, in physical form, in the real world, uh, is you know something which it seems crazy that we even need to say that these days. But so much is now reliant upon desk research and seeing things that have already been pre-filtered, um, that have already been curated in some way and put into a nice, easy-to-consume form on the web, that there is that powerful effect that you can tap into by just being willing to go out there and actually see for yourself and see what it's really like on the street you know what's and all the the smells the sights the sounds of it all yes and also you know this career that i've kind of carved out and, and done i've hustled my whole career <laughs> this has not been an easy ride i mean when i moved to the uk for the first eight months nothing was no door would open because I didn't have UK experience. I had this great network. I had a really strong CV, but nobody would open the door. And it was, it was a huge ego blow. It was a really, really hard time. And I would make Rice Krispie sushi, which I'll also send you a picture. I've done this since college and I would drop it off. And it's with my CV. That's this well-designed, like this beautiful package. And either I would get a phone, you know, I tend to to work as a great conversation starter because I would always send it to the person I wanted to have the conversation with. And in London, it worked for some and, and, and one recruiter was like, we don't take bribes here. Like, so <laughs> you have to also know your market. But the point being is, you know, if, if somebody goes, listens to this and goes like, you know, I like to do this a bit more, you have to hustle for it. it. It's never been given. And that's also made it 
in some ways much more joyous because it's you know built Lego blocks of experience in a non-traditional way. But it is doable if you're willing to take the risk. I ask a lot. I, I, I'm ballsy in things. And in this particular role that I'm in now, I created it. I said, this is, you need this. And, and I said, and I have a job title. And he goes, what's your job title? You know, so that's also important. Don't get complacent in what we, we need to not get complacent even once we've got our, our leg up the rung. You know, you always have to push. So when you think back now over your career and conscious that we have listeners to this podcast who are probably at a fairly formative stage in their own careers, maybe just Mm. graduating this year and looking for their first role. If people are looking to get into a role like yours, is there anything you'd change about the path that you have taken or you'd offer as advice for people uh, who are thinking about going down a route like this? I wouldn't actually change. I think I would have probably made some more phone calls before I moved to London to, to like know more than two people. Um, but no, I wouldn't change anything. I would, I would think I would have given myself a bit more credit. I think that's important is that I looked at my experience through a very negative lens for a long time because it wasn't traditional. And when I would look for a traditional job, I don't qualify. I'm not a pure strategist. I'm not a pure job title. And that's made things much more complicated. And there's more uncertainty. When there's when you do something super, super, super niche and unique, there's less opportunity. But then if somebody can, you know, I can see when somebody's eyes light up when I'm talking to them and they get it right away. Those are the people that you want to work with to begin with. But there's been so, you ha- in order to get those eyes that light up, I had to meet with probably a hundred people that looked at me like, wow, you're so fascinating, but I don't know what to do with you. So I think the thing I would, the advice I would give is if you want to do something different, you have to accept that it's going to be a harder road. But the richness of it is after all these years, I now am in a place where I now see that being an outsider means more than being inside. But I didn't know that. And I now say that and I, and I scream it with value and I used to say it as a negative. I, I never told anybody I'd been to 60 countries. You know, that like that's just my thing. I've now put that on my CV. That's important. <laughs> Be less humble, I think is important. Be less secretive. There's a way of showcasing what you do in a way that's not completely overboasting. There's a, there's such a fine line, but we also, women are not so great at this. We, we don't sing our pra- our own praises enough. And I would say, speak out more about what you do and ask. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think particularly when you're working on things which are not necessarily fully understood, um, there's that real importance to to embrace that and to see the fact that, as you say, that doesn't need to be a downside. Often, in fact, it can be a sign that you're just working on things which are going to be very important in the future. Uh, and it's simply a case that there aren't necessarily defined roles around them at the moment or it doesn't fit into the existing framework. Uh, but that in itself can be a very positive sign that it's something which is going to be disruptive and, and valuable going into the future. And I mean, it's it's great that you've stuck with it and, and built that uh, area and that practice for yourself. Um, and very kind of you to come onto the, the show and share some of that 
journey with uh, everyone in the Mex community. Um, and there's a My whole pleasure. bunch. Well, it's 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 great, and um, you know, I'll make sure that we put links in the show notes to the various things that we've talked about because there are all sorts of interesting references and articles which came up during the conversation. So um, I'll make sure I stick those in the the show notes, and listeners can great. go and check it out. But Amy, thank you very much indeed for for taking the time to come on the show. Really enjoyed it. And the last thing I would just say is like, just go for it, you know, and don't become complacent. Just always keep learning. It's so, it enriches your own life as much as your work. And that's really important. Words to live by. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Amy. I certainly very much relished the opportunity to have that conversation with her. And my thanks to her for taking the time to do it. Um, thanks also again are due to Ramona Liberoff, who once again was the person who introduced me to Amy, as she did for our guest on the previous episode as well. Um, as ever, Ramona's introductions have born great fruit and it was a wonderful discussion and conversation to be able to have. Some other things going on in the Mex community. I promised you a bit of an update on that at the start. Um, the dinners are continuing. In fact, as I record this, I'm getting ready for the January 17th Mex dinner, which is going to be held in London. Uh, that one now is fully booked out, unfortunately, but um, we have another one coming up on the 26th of March. These are just informal gatherings where we have a discussion theme to get the conversation going, but really it's an opportunity to just meet other people within the Mex community, people who've been guests on this podcast, people who've been involved in the conferences, people who've been participating in the discussions online uh, over the years that we've been doing Mex. So if that's something which you're interested in getting involved with and coming along to one of those dining club meetings, then just drop me an email and I'll be happy to send you the details and make sure you get an invite in the future. The email address for that is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Uh, and back to that theme of introductions, um, almost everyone who has been a guest on the podcast has come through a personal introduction of some kind. So if it's something which you yourself are interested in doing and want to come on and have a conversation about something you've been thinking about in your career or uh, some of the things that you've done um, over your time in the industry, or if you know someone else who you think would make an interesting guest, do drop me a line. It's always good to hear those kind of recommendations. Uh, and really, that's the best way I've found to make sure we continue to get interesting guests on the show is through those kind of intros. I'll be back again soon with another episode, but for now, don't forget those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section, where you'll also find the archive of all of the previous episodes. But until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye.